Welcome to EWA's FinLit Podcast. EWA is a fee-only RIA based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We hope all listeners of this podcast will benefit as we deep dive into uh, complex financial topics that we will make simplified for you. And we hope that this really serves as a catalyst so that you can make the best financial planning decisions uh, for your family and also save time. Welcome, everybody, to uh, FinLit by EWA podcast. This week, we are talking about five misconceptions uh, around financial planning topics. We're going to dive deep into those. I'm joined here with Jameson Smith today. Uh, so Jameson, what's the first uh, misconception that we see on a daily basis with new uh, you know, potential clients or just out there in the, the media? First one we're going to look at is buying versus renting. We'll spend some time on housing. It's a huge, hot topic. Um, People get really passionate and opinionated about this one way or the other, which is interesting. But um, yeah, we've analyzed this um, hundreds of times. Different the math behind the situation. Um, ultimately, it's a it's a lifestyle a lifestyle decision though. But let's dive into houses. So, what are some things, Matt, that you've seen with clients that influence this decision? Yes, I think you know it has to be. We're gonna ref- we'll put a lot of resources out there in this one as well. So, um, purely from a math standpoint, there's you know if you just look up statistics of how often people move, it's I, I want to say it's over seven times a year that someone moves. Seven times a year, seven times in a lifetime. Seven times in a lifetime, yeah, not in the year. Seven times in a lifetime. So, let's just use a half a million dollar home as an example. Um, generally speaking, there's like a six percent transaction fee every time you do that, right? So that's 30,000 times seven, that's $210,000 in fees if you were to buy every single home. That's just one consideration. Um, The second consideration is that there are a lot of phantom costs for the house, such as the biggest one most people don't think about is home maintenance. Mm -hmm. There's taxes, there's insurance, there's there's taxes, there's insurance, and then there's also the, the, uh, the interest on the loan you take out as well. But let's just say hypothetically that someone takes out a $3,500 a month, $3,500 a month mortgage. Just say that's around a half million dollar home, right? And so, um, and then let's say that I do that. And then let's say you rent for $3,500 a month. Okay, so no difference in cost. So just to the general public, they would say, well, you know, Jameson is flushing money down because that rent is just going away. But in reality, if we look at, let's assume my $3,500 a month is all inclusive of my uh, mortgage payment, which includes principal and interest, my taxes and my insurance. The home cost, you generally have to look at your home value, you know, 2% of the home value to minimum is going to be spent. You know, that's 10,000 a year. If I have to replace a roof, my AC goes out, my HVAC, my landscaping, you know, whatever that maintenance is. And so if we just take a thousand dollars a month and I, um, and you by renting, you don't have home maintenance. If you take that thousand dollars a month and invest it or even stick it in the savings, I mean, that's $60,000 in five years. Let's say in five years I sell. When you look at the equity I've put in, I have established in my house minus the closing cost. Assuming you've invested that at a return of you know seven percent, you're going to be way ahead. And then if we do that analysis in 10, 20, 30 years, you're you're actually always going to be ahead. 
So what most people look at is they just look at the rent versus the mortgage. Um, but the phantom costs are what really get you. So that I am a big believer in owning a home. Don't get me wrong. But what we want to correct from a misconception standpoint in this podcast is that it's not, most people justify a big purchase. They justify, you know, upkeeping it. They justify a huge renovation saying it's an investment. And sure, there is some value, but it is not an investment. An investment should grow within past inflation in a home. Generally speaking, there are certain hot pockets um, in the United States that we're talking specifically uh, that will you know get double digit returns. But consistently over time, I mean, we're looking at real estate, personal owned real estate, under four percent a year. Um, so the you know the misconception here is that we're not saying it's better to rent or better to buy. The two things we want to point out is for renters, you should not feel bad about renting. As long as you're disciplined and saving the difference of what you would have spent in you know, those phantom costs, you're in good shape and you'll have a flexibility. If you need to get up and move, you can move. If you want to you know, stay in the city but go to a different place, you have that flexibility. In a house, you're really stuck because of those back-end transaction costs and those phantom costs. Um, so if you're going to own own, but make sure the time frame is right. Make sure you're doing it for your family, your lifestyle, because you want to, um, not as a justification process because you think it's a good financial decision. So both are good decisions because you all, everyone needs a place to live. But the misconception here is that homeownership is so much better than renting. Um, it may be so much better than renting from a lifestyle perspective because you have control. It may be worse from a lifestyle perspective because you have all this stuff, you know, responsibilities on your back. Uh, that depends on the, on the individual. But Education here is key, so people know what they're getting into either way. Yeah, I think a couple of things. To add. I've heard um, number one, I, yeah, I agree with all of that. But I've heard people say like everybody should own a home, and I'm like, okay, I mean that's really the misconception. Like everybody should own a home. It's just a ridiculous statement yeah. to make. It's so situational, and again, from a financial standpoint, there's usually a seven year break even most cases. Um, where you have to live in the house for seven years to break even. And if you're going to move before that, you're probably going to lose out with the um, commissions for the house sale, the upkeep, taxes, et cetera. Second thing is um, with the upkeep, I've heard all the time, well, I'll just build a brand new house and I won't have to do maintenance. And it's like, okay, well, maybe for the first couple of years. But if you were to look like a brand new house now, 10 years from now, you may put $50,000, $100,000 into a roof. If you were to like amortize that out the course that you're in, the course of time you're in the house, that's where we, you know, that $10,000 a year makes sense because it may not all happen every single year, but it may be these huge purchases, you know, every five years or so on. Um, and the second thing with renting, another thing with renting is just the peace of mind that it provides a lot of people being able to move, like you said, and just not having to worry about the upkeep. And one other thing I want to note that I think people get caught up on is like, I guess this is probably like, you just look back in history, like the American dream, like what is it, 50, 1950s, 1960s, like it's like you, you, you know, buy a house and that's like the definition of success, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a huge misconception. And that's why a lot of people feel this like pressure to buy, a, like get out of school, get a job and like buy a house, which like realistically it could be. Um, one of the worst financial decisions you make if you buy it when you're young, you move, you end up losing money on it, you have no idea what you're getting into. Um, so I think there's just a lot of societal pressure and things that people think makes them successful around owning a house, which is totally a misconception. Yeah, no question. And just to use my personal self as an example, you know, um, 
rented the first 10 years of my career. And had I not done that, so the first one was like ridiculous. I mean, this was like, I don't know, 15, you know, 13, 14 years ago, but like it was $500 a month. And it was like one of four units in a house on Mount Washington. It was, it was not ideal. We'll put it that way. It was ideal for the budget, but it was not an ideal living situation. But that allowed me to quit my job at a big four accounting firm and go to a broker dealer and start to start this company from scratch where, you know, I didn't know where my first paycheck was coming from. It was kind of like a, you know, you eat what you kill model. Uh, not kind of, it was. You had to get your own clients from scratch. And if I had owned a home at that point, because I could have afforded it um, with the salary job I have, I wouldn't have been able to leave that job. And we wouldn't be sitting here today. Literally, if I would have bought a home. So that buying a home just impacts so much other uh, areas of your life. And so then if we look at the other stages of life, how I was able to reinvest because I kept that rent low. Um, and now that I do own a home, you know, I just laugh <laughs> at myself because it's like, um, we're, you know, doing some like landscaping in the front yard, just the rocks alone. I'm like, if I would have just taken the money I'm spending <laughs> on these white rocks and put it in my, my Roth IRA, like renting is so much better from a financial perspective. Now I'm happy because we, you know, it's, it's, it's our it's place. House, yeah. yeah. It's my daughter's, you know, grown up there, et cetera. The dogs have a, have a fence in the backyard. So don't get me wrong. There's many conveniences, but just like the coordination of like the people that have to come in and out to like fix stuff. Like the boiler is shot yesterday. Garbage disposal went out and like my time just coordinating those That's calls. Weird. I mean, if you look at the individual, I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous from a financial perspective how much I think renting is better than not buying. And yeah. I'm just going to prove that for a second. So let's just assume, for example, I would, I don't because I own a home now. Just get that, you know. So on very unbiased advice, a thousand a month investment over thirty years. Like if you decide to rent Jameson for the next thirty years, if you just invest that in like a Roth four hundred one k, so it's all tax free in the back end. 7% return, you're going to have $1.22 million on the back end. And what is that investing, just maxing out a Roth 401k? That's just 1000 a month. 1000 a month. Yeah, so I'm just using the same yeah. example, yeah, like yeah. half a million dollar yep. home, you rent. Now, let's say that you don't rent, because in Pittsburgh, I mean, you can get a really, you're not going to, it's hard to even find a place that would cost $3,500 a month. I'm just talking about like other areas where the rent would be similar to mortgage, but in Pittsburgh, like, Rent is cheap, right? Yeah. Like, what do you pay under two thousand a month right now for rent? It's like two thousand all in with all in. Parking. Okay, yeah. So let's just say hypothetically that you were to invest um, the difference, so fifteen hundred dollars, um, because if you were to buy a similar place to what you have now, it'd be like a half million dollar condo, and you would be paying thirty five hundred dollars a month all in instead of probably 2, even more. I looked at it actually. Yeah, it's probably, probably yeah, whatever. Five let me keep. 000, yeah. I already have this math yeah, done, okay. so let's just say it's lower. <laughs> so you're investing now. You're renting for two thousand versus if you own a condo for thirty five hundred a month, that's a fifteen hundred dollar a month difference in payment. Plus, you don't have maintenance. So let's just say you're able to invest twenty five hundred a month if you difference over the next uh, thirty. Now your rent would go up. So this uh, this math isn't perfect, but yeah. your maintenance would go up with inflation. But just to prove a point here, I mean, you invest twenty five hundred dollars a month for thirty years as a renter because you don't have any of these surprises and maintenance and phantom cost. You you have three million bucks. Yeah. So that sure, that half million dollar house may be worth. Well, let's let's just do the math. A million? No, maybe yeah, not so five, close to three million. Not even close. So five hundred thousand dollar home that you own outright in thirty years, three percent growth rate would be worth one point two two million. Yeah. Um, four percent growth rate would be worth one point six five million. I hear all the time people are like, "Oh, real estate outperforms equities." Like, no, it doesn't. If you were to buy in Austin, Texas, like ten years ago, sure, but like. 
you really would have to find the right area. It's just math. I mean, yeah. you can, the data is out yeah. there. If you look at the last 50 years, and we're talking about long-term stock market returns are 9.2% in the S&P 500. Yeah. We use seven. Long-term real estate returns are under 4%. Yeah. Um, I'm talking personal real estate, not commercial. I'm not talking about if you're in, I'm talking personal residence. You're not renting it out. That's a whole different discussion. We already did a podcast on that. Yeah. So, yeah. um, okay. So let's move on from that. Any, any closing thoughts yeah, on the buying versus renting? A couple more things. Um, so like I rent right now and <clears throat> I get asked a question all the time. Like, Oh, like what you're just flushing. Aren't money. you a financial advisor? Yeah. Why aren't you buying a house? Like you're a financial advisor. Like, what are you doing? It's such a horrible financial decision. But like, the I my so I'm in my twenties, like work a ton, and the amount of time that I don't have to think about like dealing with what did you say went out yesterday, the boiler or something like Yeah, the boiler, the yeah, rocks, the white rocks. I have a thousand square foot apartment and it's me and my dog. And so like my biggest concern is like vacuuming the dog hair off the floor and which takes five minutes. I'm getting and a call so, from the nave, this is last year about yeah, the weeds. Yeah. So then I have to hire a weed person to pull the weeds. As I'm getting calls from the neighbor about the weeds, I'm getting called from the weed person about the weeds. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. it's a lot to manage. So right? I think like while you're, especially while you're like building a career, you want to focus on other things and you're low on time. Like it can give you, it frees up so much time. So you just don't have to worry about it. There's so much flexibility. Um, so yeah, that they probably can't even put a dollar amount on that. I've component. heard a quote, honestly, like, and this is, this is hit like hard for me personally, what you own ends up owning you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Think about that second for a second. What Ooh, you yeah. own ends up owning you. And this is so true from every perspective. My house, it consumes your mind. I got to fix this. I got to do this. I'm not happy with this. My car. neighbor did this. I got to keep up with this the car. You own it. One scratch. You're like mentally, you're like, Oh, business, everything. Yeah. Right. But if you think about when you lease a car, if it gets dinged, who you cares? Care. Yeah. If you rent a, uh, your, apartment and something like who cares right yeah. so it's just mentally freeing honestly to rent and there's there's both sides of this yeah. because also like owning physical assets some people don't like the stock market because it goes up and down it's very peace of mind i mm -hmm. own this tangible asset but there's two sides of it. i think you have to figure out who you are and i think i don't think there's a right answer and that's not the goal of our podcast is to prove one way or the other our job here is to provide the framework into making good decision-making within boundaries of your specific financial plan. If you're going to rent, great. Here's what to think about. If you're going to own, great. Here's all the aspects to think about. And that's our, that's our job here yeah. is to clear the misconception that it's not one or the other. It's whatever one is best for you. And once you decide that, then make sure it works for your specific life and your plan. And most like purchases like this are bit long-term decisions. Like you're not just buying a house and selling it a year buying a car, anything, you're, it's a long-term decision that you have to like, it's like a stock decision almost. Yep. So those are huge things to consider. I think pe that people don't think about them. They can just offload a house really quickly, which you can, but, um, yeah, buying versus renting anything, it's similar things. So you want to dive into, we had a couple of other Yeah. Situations. Let's talk about cars. Let's talk about boats. Let's talk about vacation homes. Let's just hit these quick, quickly. So cars in general, we actually did a video on this. Uh, so you can look at this up on our website, ewa-llc.com leasing versus buying a car. Um, generally speaking, most Americans actually who own a car own it for just around three years. Um, so if you just look at the math, like if you buy a new car, it depreciates off the lot, then you sell it in three years. Sure, you have some equity, but the payment you could have on a lease for those three years would be much less. You could invest that money and be way ahead 
of that car in the first three years. So buying now this is this is math. So we found if you're gonna if you own a car and you're willing to drive it for like depends on the type of car like Tesla, Honda, they all kind of map out differently. But in generally speaking, if you're able to own it for more than five years, then that's a no brainer to always buy as long as you're willing to keep that same car for more than five years, including maintenance and all that kind of stuff. We did tons of nerdy math behind this. If you're going to own a car for less than like 3.9 years, you should always lease it. Now there's a purgatory kind of the difference between that 3.9 to five because of there's different kind of cars that lease better, that own better. Mm-hmm. But in general, for any kind of car, if you're going to own it for more, if you're going to drive it and you're willing to keep that for five, more than five years, own it. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're a business owner, have some tax benefits, own it. Uh, but also if you're a business owner, you can deduct the lease payment. So mm-hmm. there's tax benefits to both sides. Uh, but in generally speaking, there's way too much time gets put into like car purchases. It's just something you're, it's going to get you from point A to point B in my opinion. Um, and my second opinion, second opinion is if you're married household, generally speaking, own one rent or own one and lease one and have, have both options. Cause like, Psychologically, it is nice to have a new car every couple of years, and that, that allows you to keep switching it up, confined with the mileage limits, uh, et cetera. Yeah. If you're married with kids and you have like one that you own that, you know, you might have little kids that are going to beat the car up, and then you have the one that's leasing, or I guess vice versa, maybe you don't care about the lease. But anyway, you get the new car that you could drive on trips or do, you know, things that you don't have to. Absolutely. About. And some other tips around leasing, like, is. Um, definitely negotiate buying or leasing. It's been harder over the last two years with the COVID and the, the you know supply and demand. But back in the day, man, we could negotiate. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's there's insurance you can buy up front. So the lease, like you can return it with like up to I think the one I did on like I drove like a Lincoln MXC or something like that like five or six years ago, and and I bought um, insurance up front. It was a couple like. I want to say it was under a thousand dollars, but then it was like basically, if you return the car with seven thousand dollars worth of damage, which I knew a hundred percent was going to happen <laughs> with two golden retrievers, and uh, then you know you don't owe us anything. So that was key because it was it got scratched, it got dinged. So if you're going, if you are going to lease, like buy that upfront insurance, um, so you have the peace of mind, you know you can beat it up and and turn it turn it in without owing anything. That makes sense. Okay, let's talk about boats. So, um. In general, this is one that high maintenance. Uh, a lot of we've seen a lot of clients like buy a boat and then they use it like once a year. Oh yeah. Um, so if, if that's the case, like definitely rent it. Um, I'm actually a member at something called Freedom Boat Club. Any location you can go out, you pay like three fifty a month, and then um, you just when you go, out, you can take it out literally anytime, unlimited amount of times, uh, and you just pay gas, which is pretty cool. So I don't have to worry about docking it, I don't have to worry about maintaining it, I don't have to worry about anything. Um, You've been on it with me. It's a little bit sketchy because I've, you know, I've only. You don't know how to drive the boat, but. Park the boat. I know how to drive the boat. I know. Parking the boat. I nailed it last time, but there's been some. Yeah. Iffy. Yeah. Some scary times. Did you times. have to get a boating license? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It was tough. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. I did it in one day, though. Yeah. Yeah, there's been some questionable times. Anyway. Anyways, I rent. I So, I mean, if you're boating every weekend, I would own a boat. Like and it makes with sense. that thing you have, you can use it like around the world, right? So you could be yeah. in Europe and absolutely, which is cool. yeah, it's pretty cool. So that's just my take on it. It's similar to renting. It's not something I'm passionate about. Some it's like an option to have. We take we do team meetings on there every once in a while. It's, it's pretty cool. But just in general, if you're going to boat, like make sure your use has to be high enough to justify the cost. Because even if you're going to rent a boat for five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks for the day, 
and you do that twice a year, that is much, much oh, yeah. better than going and buying a boat. Same thing with the house, the maintenance, the upkeep that people Absolutely. don't think about. There's hidden costs. Yeah, but there, there's a break-even point. And the, and the reason I'm not going to give general advice in this podcast, it depends on the price point of the boat. If you are like an avid boater out there once a week, then yeah, buy the boat. Yeah. But um, there is, there's definitely a break-even point where if you're going to even probably under 10 times a year, you should be renting and not buying it. Okay, next one, vacation house. Yeah, so vacation house, I think it's really, you know, obviously you want to make sure this, the financial plan can support it. If the financial plan supports it, again, this is a lifestyle decision. Um, if it's something, so I hear some, sometimes people say, oh, the reason that I want to buy, buy a vacation house is convenience. I can store my stuff there, you know, and there's other reasons like that. The reasons why the people that buy the vacation homes often regret it is, we're bored. We don't like going back to the same place. We also have seen that as a reason to buy a vacation home is to create memories, consistency, et cetera. Um, but there, there are some reasons where, you know, if it's just consistency, like having uh, your stuff in one place, like literally go buy a new wardrobe, buy a suitcase and just every time you travel, keep it there. Let's say all in you're under 10 grand. Like that's a much, much better financial decision. <laughs> than saying, oh, I have my clothes and stuff there at a place. Because yeah. we've literally had some people say that to us, yeah. Rick. Um, but this is a very personalized decision. It's definitely not a financial choice if unless you're going to like Airbnb it and rent it out. Then it can become a great financial choice depending on the how good the area is because then you can actually profit uh, from it. But then, you know, again, the con of that is like, oh, you go there and it's like 50 people have been there and touching all your yeah, stuff. And yours. so, yeah. I would say the one thing that, from clients that have bought or not bought vacation houses is if you're still working, you're pro to be in a position to afford a vacation house, you're probably pretty busy, successful professional. And so you buy this vacation house, it's a struggle to get there enough. You may only go once or twice a year. Um, and then it's like, well, we take these two week long trips a year, but now we're not traveling to see anywhere else in the world because we feel obligated to go to this house Use that it. we own. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it can be a different scenario if you're retired. A lot of advice that we've given, and again, this is from hearing this from a lot of different clients, is beginning years in, in retirement, travel, don't buy the house. Maybe when you're in like your 70s and you start to like slow down a little bit. I'm not saying you can't be healthy and active when you're in your 70s. You absolutely can. But when you've done all of the traveling around the world, maybe then look to buy the vacation house where you're going to spend more time there and consistently go to. to that's great place. advice, James. Yeah, that's great advice. Because And the other thing too, like um, if you're a busy professional and you have a home here and then a home somewhere else, now you have to deal with two people with the weeds and two people Imagine with having the... two boilers. Two yeah. weed people, two yeah. boilers. Yeah, it sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> but anyways, to each their own. So... Um, Okay, that was number one, buying versus renting. Yeah. Number two is the misconception is I need to have my money spread out between advisors because um, I want to bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, I want to see who performs better. I feel safer if it's spread out. So let's talk through that. Yeah. Um, the first thing, let's look at fees. So most, if you're an AUM-based advisor, which a lot of advisors are, um, it's a tiered fee schedule, which works inverse of tax brackets. So our fee schedule, for example, the first $500,000 is 1.4%. The next $500,000 is 1%, and then it drops to 0.8. So if you have, I did the math before this, if you have $3 million account, $3 million portfolio, and you have that with one advisor, you're going to hit breakpoints in the fee schedule. 
that comes up to about $28,000 a year with our fee schedule. If, if we're, you know, the, the, um, the, the most we would charge, I guess, per se, if that was spread out over three advisors, you're going to pay if again, just using our fee schedule, for example, that million dollars hitting the, the highest fee brackets is going to be $12,000 at each advisor. So that's an extra $6,000 a year in fees. I think it's 8,000 a year. 28 yeah, versus 8, 36. Year, yeah, 8,000 a year in fees that you're paying just for having your stuff spread out. So maybe the advice is that good that it's worth the extra 8,000. But generally what we see, it just like if you, okay, so you're getting surgery on your, what, hip? For yeah, whatever. FAI. How many doctors did you consult for that? Just a one. bunch in Pittsburgh before. Did they all the give 15, you different opinions? 15 years ago, yeah. And then they didn't know. And then the, luckily I got a, actually the head uh, doctor at Duke I got connected with. And he knew that Philippon out in Vail, who's like the best in my yeah. opinion. And so he did my right hip, worked great. That was in 2008. And now, you know, fast forward to 2023 and we're doing the, that was a long time ago, 15 yeah. years. Yeah. So anyway, but you got like probably oh, yeah, 10 different opinions. opinions. You can't do anything. You need yeah. a hip replacement. And literally, he was able to arthroscopically go in. No replacement, no anything. You know, re very regimented therapy for like six months after, but now I feel great. Yeah. So same thing with an advisor. You, you could ask three different advisors. They're probably going to give you three different opinions on something. It's going to be all close to the same thing, but there's probably going to be little nuances in all of them. Um, yep. And so you're just going to create such... From what we've seen, a headache. A lot of time, the egos get in the way because every advisor wants to manage all the money, and so this guy is like not taking any advice from the other person. It just can be—it's chaos. Total yeah. If chaos. you've got more than one financial advisor, it's just chaos. And the reason it's chaos is not only from a fee perspective, but it's also if you look at your time. Like the number one thing an advisor should do is save you time. If you have multiple advisors, they're all going to be trying to meet with yeah. you, compete with each other, and they're just going to waste your time, not save your time. Now you're paying higher fees, you're wasting your time. Yeah. When the sole job of advisor and the team is to quarterback everything for you and to save your time, not waste your time. You have multiple meetings throughout the year. Yeah. But then the other thing, let's just talk about taxes, is like one advisor could be doing a Roth conversion, the other advisor could be realizing gains in your non-qualified account, and they're not talking to each other. Maybe you're retired, and now you're, now you're paying a Medicare surcharge. just. For yeah, and you're saying we're converting up to the 24% bracket because he realized a huge gain in his Tesla just, stock over here. Yeah. Now the whole Roth conversion is done at a 35, and now they're, you're just wasting money. Yeah. So that, that's a one, and I have many examples of this. That's why we have a general philosophy. Now we have a very few clients who um, have one other advisor, very few. But in general, we don't work with somebody unless – you know, everything's consolidated with us. And our advice is it doesn't have to be us. You should go find so, one team that you trust to quarterback everything. It does not have to be us, but that is the best interest of you and your family for your time, uh, for coordination, for taxes, for fees, everything, all the above. And one example, the prior broker dealer, we need a client that, you know, he gave us a part of the pie. And I was like in my third or fourth year in the business. I was like, okay, it's a good account. I'm going to take this. And what happened is there's always comparison. And we beat the returns like by double the first couple of years. They still didn't move the rest of the money over. And then there was always like our whole meeting was basically asking us for advice on what the other advisor had given. Yeah. Then we would give advice and then he'd implement it with the other advisor because Roth conversions, we only had non-qualified money. So it was just, honestly, it was high stress for me and it was bad for the client. Um, he got good advice and he got a much better financial plan as a result, but ultimately we had to let him go because um, the, the time we were, we were doing the job of like the other three clients yeah. 
uh, because he also had a CPA that was very opinionated. And it, it was wasting uh, our team's time as well. And I didn't think it was good for him because he was paying higher fees than he had to. And anyway, so yeah. um, real life examples of misconception. I need to have my money spread out between multiple advisors. And that's just, we see that as the opposite. And also with custodians, like I didn't have my money. We see a lot of people like have, you know, 20 different accounts because they just feel like it's safe. If you have a reputable custodian like Fidelity or Charles Schwab, they have insurances, you know, cash up to like literally above SPIC limits of 500,000. They have insurance above that of 1.9 million. So if that company goes under, you're safe. You're totally safe. And then from a securities perspective, like Fidelity has up to a billion dollars per customer that's protected. Um, so just not the case. And, and the, the more accounts you have and the more spread out it is, the more likely something's going to happen or identity theft or you're just going to lose track of it. But if it's all in one place, you can spot check it, you know, weekly, monthly, and and make sure everything's safe and, and save your time as well. So not only from an advisor perspective, I also recommend if you can get everything under one custodian. Um, most people think that's not safe. That is actually the safest thing you can do, assuming that you're under those insurance limits between cash and investments, etc. Um, okay, let's go to number three. Number three is, and this is a big one. A lot of TV personalities, you know, believe in I can you can self insure like buy term and so we're talking about like risk management here. So buy term insurance, invest the difference, and we have a lot of clients that do this. Um, I own a ton of term insurance myself. I also own you know permanent insurance as well, whole life insurance for for many reasons. But um, basically, the misconception is what. Do you want to go buy term invested difference specifically? Yep. yep. So <clears throat> that's good advice for most most people. We're talking about high income earners, high net worth individuals. Um, most of the population should buy term and invest the difference. For sure. Um, but high income earners, let's just say. Real, real quick with a misconception, even with the general population. So let's talk about the middle class. Um, let's talk about you know families that are dependent on a breadwinner. A lot of advice we see from person TV personalities buy a twenty year policy. Let's say you're tw- your age, so you're twenty seven. You buy a twenty year policy, twenty six. You buy a twenty year policy at forty six. That thing's ending. At forty six, you now have to get a new health exam, a new approval, and you know who knows what's happened to your health. You may never get approved again yeah. for for insurance. So the question then is, have you been disciplined by forty six to accumulate enough of a net worth where, if God forbid, you die, your family, your kids, everything's you know settled. Um, statistically, like 99% of the time, no. Um, the median net worth at age 65 is under $300,000 in America. Yeah. So people just do not invest the difference. So the, I'm not saying like the middle class should go buy whole life insurance. They shouldn't. The common misconception is, oh, go buy term insurance, invest the difference. Like first, you have to invest the difference. Most people don't. Most people don't. Secondly, you have to buy a term insurance program that is layered, maybe your insurance needs going to go down in 20 years. So get half of it in 20 years. It's certainly not going to be zero for most people. So then also layer a 30 year policy or one that, you know, lasts till 65 in there as well. Yeah. And then be disciplined, work with an advisor. Cause most people just statistically do not self insure. Um, it's a pipe dream and you can't follow these TV personalities. Assume you're going to get 12% returns. You're not, <clears throat> Most people invest in the market. They, they make mistakes. The average investor gets under 4% a year. There's many studies that prove that. Uh, you know, With a, a good advisor, if you do it yourself or you stay in and follow the right principles of you know, investments, asset allocation, diversify, stay in long term, you can, we're, we're comfortable assuming 7 even 8%. 
most of our plans we assume under that just to be conservative. Yeah. Um, so now with that being said, what about high income earners? So yeah, I mean, whole life can be a good alternative. I mean, a good ass like place for them to store money, but from a, or you want to talk about like self-insuring? Yeah, even for a high income earner, let's talk about self-insuring. Do you yeah. see that happen in 20 years? If you're making a no. million dollars a year and someone's 35, do you see them being self-insured at 55? No, because you need, let's think about this. So if we were to, if you're making a million a year and you have, yeah, let's say you're 35 and a couple kids, maybe um, spouse doesn't work, which is common, you probably need $5 million at least of term insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to cover, you know, probably a million dollar mortgage. You want to put the kid, you know, send the kids to college. That's probably a million bucks right there. Plus, um, there's income that would need replaced if the spouse isn't, you know, if you die and your spouse isn't working, they need income. So not only would, yeah, that 5 million would cover that, but then that's just going to get them to age 65. And you probably need another 5 million at age 65 to be financially independent. So you would basically need $10 million, right, in that scenario to, to cover financial independence and lifestyle for the next 30 years. So Yeah, it's happening if you die. So I mean, the reality is, like, if you think about your life insurance need, it's a life acronym, right? It's liabilities, typically a mortgage. Federal school loans are forgiven if you die. It's typically income replacement, mm-hmm. you know, for your spouse or kids. And then it's education. Or the final expenses, F, and then education costs for your kids. If you plan on doing private school or, or college. So 20 years, will your life insurance need be less? Yeah, absolutely. Your mortgage will be less 20 years in. Your college costs potentially are now paid for and gone. So then we're just talking about income replacement. Have you done a good enough job saving if you pass 55 where you don't need life insurance? And the answer, whether you're making 100000 a year or a million dollars a year, what we've seen is majority of the time, unless you've inherited a bunch or, or sold a business, the answer is absolutely not. Then the question is, what's best? Should you layer term insurance, 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, like we described, or does some permanent insurance make sense as safe dollars, which can also be accessible in retirement, et cetera. But just as, and I'm not saying one is better than the other. This is highly personalized. I think a good financial plan, you can buy term and invest the difference. But the general advice in there is get a 20-year term policy and and start saving is irrational. But also saying, go, I'm going to put all my money in whole life insurance and not going to invest in the market and get my 401k match Roth. That is irrational as well. You need to have a good, well-thought-out plan, a discipline plan. For the majority of people, it's going to be mostly ter- layered term life insurance, 10, 20, 30-year policies. And then if you're a high net worth income earner over $500,000 or more, then whole life insurance uh, can make sense as a safe asset, tax-efficient, asset-protected, et cetera, and also serve as that gap approaching retirement and then also throughout retirement because um, most likely your lifestyle needs will be much, much higher as yeah. well. Bottom line is misconception is people don't and have the discipline to invest the difference. And there's no, just like renting or buying, um, it's very individualized, very specific to, you know, what type of term, how long, what yeah. type of insurance should you have, et cetera. Yeah. So, okay, so what's, the fourth misconception is around retirement and tax brackets. So talk to us about how would you, if you were to say a statement, Jameson, what's the misconception here? I will be in a lower tax bracket once I retire. Therefore... I'm in a fund pre-tax dollars right now. Because I'm in the highest tax bracket. Absolutely. So we did a whole podcast on this. Um, I think it was episode number two. Two, maybe. Yeah, episode number two. Rye Roth makes sense or CPA's worst nightmare. Um, 
So talk to us why this just isn't the case for, especially for, so first of all, if you're a low income earner, let's say under a 24% tax bracket, you should be funding your Roth because that's a great, you're getting the money in, you're paying taxes low now and then it's tax free forever. Who knows what happens in the future? Um, But let's talk about high income earners. So let's say you're making a million a year now. You're in 37% tax bracket. So, okay, I should deduct my 401k contribution. And then when I get to retirement, you know, my lifestyle is only $15,000 a month, $300,000 a year. You know, I'll have, I need less money. That that 300,000 is less than a million. I'm gonna be a lower tax bracket. Um, But if we were to project out what income looks like in retirement, let's say social security, Today's dollars would be like 60000 a year with... Between two spouses, let's yeah, say. Yeah, two yep. spouses, let's say, and cost of living um, adjustment would be higher down there. Let's say 60000 a year in today's dollars. A lot of times that you don't fully, early years in retirement, you don't fully retire. So maybe there's some part-time work. We'll just say there's not. Um, if you're a high-income earner, you've accumulated a lot of your money in non-qualified assets. So any capital gains or non-qualified dividends show up as income on your tax return. So you have $100,000 gain. It's a 15% tax on that, but that 100 still shows up as part of your income, figuring out what your marginal tax brackets are. Yeah. So you probably have 50, you know, what we've seen of somebody that's high net worth with a huge big non-qualified account. Maybe there's 50,000 a year in dividends that's getting added onto the income. Um, Any type of private equity, other alternate investments that could show up. And then so that alone right there could be a couple hundred thousand dollars of income just from stuff that's getting added on to your tax return that you're not even taking as a distribution. But the biggest thing is retirement on distributions. So you may say, okay, I'm going to retire at 65. I have Social Security. Maybe I'm working part-time. Maybe I have a pension. And that's going to give me a couple hundred thousand a year. I'm good. I don't need to take any money. If I need to take any money, I'll take it from my non-qualified account. I'm not paying taxes. Well, you've accumulated a couple million dollars inside of a pre-tax IRA, and that's great while you're in your 60s and you're not taking any distributions and then that money's going to continue to grow and when you're 73 the government says you have to start taking a portion of this out whether you need the money or not and so that requirement distribution now gets tacked on as income and you're just going to get crushed in that's going to immediately bump you up into high tax brackets even if you're not spending the money so that's the first thing is people really have no idea how much income is actually going to show up on their tax return in retirement um yeah, anything to add on that? Then we can talk about yeah, and if you're saving 37, and most likely in that example, you're going to be you know, right back out in your pre-tax accounts. A lot of it will be coming out at 32. So it's 5% difference worth gambling on tax rate code changes yeah, 30 years from this. now, Medicare rates, sequence of returns. And we address, there's so many details. We could spend hours just talking about the benefits of having control in the Roth. But then literally, if you're a high-income earner as well, if you put in, you know, thirty thousand to a to a pre tax account and you save ten thousand, let's just say to keep the math simple in taxes, versus putting in a Roth and then it compounds, you know, is that the peace of mind you're going to have on a Roth, not being taxed later, not having required distributions, assuming you roll it to a Roth IRA at retirement, um, to not being subject to sequence of return risk, that not showing up as part of your MAGI modified adjusted gross income, which is how you your Medicare rates get calculated. Etc. All of those peace of minds, all of those actual logical, statistical evidence, uh, really, you should have a balanced approach in your 
how you save money, what's going to be taxed now versus what's going to be taxed later. I'm not saying put everything in a Roth. It shouldn't be, hey, get every tax deduction I possibly can right now. Um, that will cause problems later. Yeah. One practical example that does go along with the misconception is like we have had people that are, let's say they're 60 and they are in their high income. Maybe that's their like peak income earning and they're going to retire in the next couple of years. And if they have done proper Roth planning beforehand, yeah, maybe we do take the deduction because like literally they're making a million a year now and we know in three years their income because the right planning was done is only going to be $200,000. So there is a couple use cases for this, but I would say in general, you know, most of the time don't, don't think you're going to be a lower tax bracket. Absolutely. Um, okay. So that leads us to number five. So number five is misconception is the, the thinking or the thought process of the more money I have means the more happy I will be. So let's break this down. Why is this simply not true? Give us some background on money is important yeah. for basic needs and to provide and for opportunities, but there's a certain cutoff point where there's diminishing returns and effectively at certain points where it may actually make you less happy. Yeah. So this is called the, I've heard this, but I didn't know this was the name of it until I was doing some research. The Easterland paradox is some economist and economist in the seventies that came up with this. Um, and basically Money improves quality of life to cover basic human needs, which today that's estimated to be like $80,000 a year, meaning that you have like you're your sheltered, you're your eating, you have health care, your basic stuff. That person that makes 80000 a year and, and covering that, yes, they have a higher quality of life. They're more ha happier than somebody making $20,000 a year and is struggling to do those things. So that's kind of like not really debatable. But what the misconception is, is as income goes up, that happiness gets higher, quality of life gets higher. And so what this study or this guy had come up with was that as income goes up, you basically get on the hedonic treadmill of like wanting to compete with other people, wanting to compete with your neighbors, your coworkers, because humans are naturally very tribal and you want to fit in, you want to get approval. If we were to think like life 10,000 years ago, you had to fit into a tribe to survive. If you got kicked out of the tribe, there's like a really high probability that you're going to get killed because you didn't have that community of people around you. So what what basically ends up happening is you get on this hedonic treadmill and there's a plateau of happiness because you always want, you want the bigger house, you want the bigger car, nothing's ever enough, um, which ends up, like you said, law of diminishing returns leads to being less happy. And happiness is also like very subjective, meaning different, means different things to different people. So um, yeah, any thoughts on that? No, that's so true. Um, I've experienced that personally. And the, the other, it's kind of like the using the excuse of like, once I do this, life's going to get easier. Like once I graduate mm -hmm. high school, it's going to be easier. Once I graduate college, it's going to be easier. Once I get my first job, it's going to be easier. Once I pay off my student loans, once I buy my first house, once I get married, once I'm my first kid. And the reality is life gets harder and harder and harder. So it's not about um, a certain milestone and then it's like life is fixed. It's learning how to handle adversity, learning that you can get through hard much better the more experience mm -hmm. you have. And that money, it's the same thing. It's it's not just accumulating for the sake of accumulating, thinking you're going to fix a problem. Money actually uh, puts a microscope on your problems. It doesn't fix them. It will put them under scrutiny, and, and it will oftentimes cause a lot of issues and, and a lot of problems if they're not prior addressed. So completely agree. 
We've seen that in clients. We have some of the happiest clients that are high net worth, but they have figured out a value system that they live by and the mm-hmm. money supports that value system. And then we also have some clients that we're helping that, you know, they have a high net worth and they're not happy and it's figuring out, well, how do we reverse this? How do we make sure your money, instead of just accumulating it for the sake of accumulating it, how do we get it to support you, your family, your kids, generations, uh, and, and make sure it's, it's just a support system and, and a reversal system? Because the reality is there's no one specific milestone that's going to make you happy. And money is certainly a small part of the happiness equation. Um, you know, but relationships, peace of mind, gratitude, um, purpose in life. There are so many more important things that are part of the happiness equation and money is just like a check mark. And if more money is going to help those magnify those other things in a good way, great. But if it's going to take away from those things and so now you don't have the time to focus on your purpose in life, you know, passions in work, out of work with family, et cetera, then it can definitely become a paradox very quickly. Yeah. Um, I didn't know it was called that either. Of those things we do in the research. Yeah, I've heard I've heard about that study. I read it in a couple of books, but then yeah, yeah. Scott Galloway it. talks about that yeah. in his uh, book. Highly recommend his great book, Algebra of Happiness. Yeah. You actually yeah. got me onto that one. I don't know five years ago, but yeah, yeah really really good book. Highly recommend that. Um, he talks about this this specific paradox in there. Um, yeah, Algebra of Happiness. How you know money is part of it, but it's not the end all be all. So. Mm-hmm. All right, well, hope you enjoyed this podcast. And uh, if you haven't already, please hit the follow button and and rate the podcast. That's how we can get a broader reach and and, uh, impact more people. One of our main purposes of life is impacting others and and spreading financial literacy for uh, all those across the United States. Thanks for joining. Thanks for tuning in to uh, our podcast. Hopefully you found this helpful. Really hope this is as beneficial and impactful to as many people uh, across the nation as possible. So hit the follow button, uh, make sure to rate the podcast and please share, uh, with any friends or family members that would also find this beneficial. Thank you very much.